Welcome back to Wednesday Night Community, or maybe if you haven't been here for, uh, maybe this is your first time, you're not, it's not coming back, you're just coming for the first time. So we, we, we kind of run on semester schedules here. We're like perpetually college students. And so uh, once, once the semester's over, we kind of take a break. And did you guys have a good, like, Christmas and New Year's and all that? Um, one question I, I'm just always curious about is how many, how many of you do legitimately, um, even if you don't call it a New Year's resolution, but, but you kind of think about, like, habits, activities in your life that you think, okay, New Year, fresh start. I'm going to just make some tweaks or some changes. Big one. How, how many of you do that? I'm curious. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. I, um, a couple years ago, I read a book by uh, Charles Duhigg, I think is how you say his name, and the book's called The Power of Habit, which is fascinating, especially as, as someone who um, is engaged, you know, as, as we do spiritual formation, spiritual formation is all about habituation, it's all about habits, right? And so I saw it, and I'm like, that could be interesting, and so I picked up this book, The Power of Habit, and, and I was reading through it, and he was talking about how habits function in our lives in different ways, and, but he got to something that was really, really interesting. He talked about there are certain habits which he labeled keystone habits, and he said keystone habits are different than all other habits um, because of, of how they affect things that don't seem to be connected to them when they're changed. Okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you some examples. So he said, for instance, like um, exercise. He said exercise is a keystone habit. Um, for instance, when, when a person starts exercising regularly, even if it's once a week, he said, um, things like, now some of these are not surprising, but he said things like people change their diets. You're like, yeah, no duh, I get that, right? Because you're thinking a little bit more about your body and what goes into it and all that sort of thing. But then he said some other things too. He said um, they, people become more productive at work when they start regularly exercising. Uh, they smoke less. That kind of makes more sense. They have more patience with colleagues and family. They feel less stressed. But this one is interesting. It says they use their credit card less frequently. <laughs> what in the world does that have to do with exercising, right? And they don't even necessarily know the connection between keystone habits and, and these other habits. I mean, there's been some, you know, guessing that, you know, maybe it's more around this idea of, People who start exercising have a different view of themselves, and they say things like, well, I'm not the kind of person who, right? You know, may, maybe that's an idea. We don't, we don't really know at all. But what, what he did go on to say is he said, for many people, exercise is a keystone habit that triggers widespread change. He said, exercise spills over kind of idea. Now, you might be thinking, did my spouse... You talk about, is this what we're talking about tonight? You said we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about exercising. Yes, we're talking about exercise. No, no, not really. But um, th this is really interesting. He went on to say things like, um, studies have documented that families who habitually eat together, that's kind of a keystone habit. He said, um, raise children who have better homework skills. What? All of you are like, let's go home, we got to eat fast. Um, uh, higher grades, greater emotional control, more confidence. Um, listen, this one was, I don't know how, how many of you feel convicted. I felt very convicted. People who make their bed every morning, okay? People who make their bed every morning. There's a correlation between better productivity, a greater sense of well-being, and stronger skills at sticking with a budget. How, okay, honestly, how many of you make your better? I'm going to leave my hand down because I do not do it. <laughs> Dude, wow. I am worse than I thought. 
I was thinking there'd be more people like me in that. And he goes, he goes on to say this. Let me read this section. He says, it's not that a family meal or a tidy bed causes better grades or less frivolous spending, but somehow, there's like this question mark, somehow those initial shifts, he says, starts a chain reaction that impacts all of these things that don't really seem to be connected with the one thing in the center at all. Now, in light of that, take a look, and I think it's, I think it's on your, if you picked up a bulletin on your way in, um, take a look at this statement by A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer was a Christian thinker and author um, from this past century, and he made this statement that when you first read it, you're kind of like, okay, don't overdo it, Tozer, right? Seems like a little bit like above, you know, above and beyond, but think about this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God, it's the most important thing about us. And I've kind of been haunted by this, like for a couple years. I came across this years ago, and I've thought about it, and at times I've been like, I don't know if that's true. It might be true. I don't know. Is it true? And I kind of see pieces. But as I, now, in light of this study on habituation, keystone habits, think about this. What comes into your mind when you think about God it is the most important thing about you. Why is that? Because there's nothing more keystone in your life than who God is. And in this case, we're going to say who you think he might be. It doesn't mean who you think he is, it's who he is. <laughs> His nature's set. It's not your truth and my truth. There's a truth. But my understanding of truth will radically impact my entire life. Every, things that I don't even think are connected to, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, all these things way out here that, well, that's not connected with it. Why is it that so often when you read the Gospels, Jesus is talking about money, and he's talking, and they're just kind of like, I thought we are talking religion. He goes, I'm talking Keystone, I'm talking everything. Every, I, I have claim over everything in your life. And so we're, we're starting this series looking at this idea, because I don't know about you guys, but for me, even as I look back in my life, there have been times, how many of you would say this? I, like I think of a time in college. I remember having an argument with a person in college over a certain theological thing I want to talk to you about, and I was just adamant about it. I was just like, I can't even believe you call yourself a Christian. And it was something, it was so stupid. Stupid. Like, I look back, I don't even believe that anymore, <laughs> right? I really don't. I don't believe that what I was arguing for. But I was so convinced. I mean, I was willing to go to the carpet for it. And I was passionate. I was sincere. I had good motives, right? It's not like I was a wicked person. trying. But I so believed that I was positive that that's what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. And I was pretty sure I could find a couple of proof texts in the Bible to support it. But now looking back... So many years later, I mean, I, I just think, oh, man, that's a, I hope that person doesn't remember that. That was an embarrassing conversation, right? So the reality is I know I've had false, misled ideas about who God is. Now, fortunately, I don't have any left. I, uh, um, no, but the reality is, now again, I don't know what they are. If I knew what they were, I wouldn't have them, right? So that means I'm holding beliefs that are false about God, but I don't even know what they might be possibly. So what this series, what we want to do is, yeah, look, each week we're going to look at kind of a, a specific common lie about who God is 
that is really, really destructive to our faith and our life and relationships and that sort of thing. But more importantly than the particular lie each week we look at, hopefully you're going you're gonna to discover a process through which you can kind of say, Holy Spirit, what, what is it in my life that you can refine, that you can kind of sift, that, that you can remold specifically about who I think you are that, that might be holding me back or tripping me up. So here's, here's some questions I want to ask to get started with. If you have your bulletin, we're going to go through a couple of these. There's, there's some fill in the blanks there too. So why don't I see God? I love God. I'm devoted to him. Not perfectly. But why don't I see him for, for who he truly is? He's revealed himself in scripture. I try to read scripture. And, but, so why don't I see God for who he is? What keeps me from knowing him deeply throughout each day. Why do I feel at times kind of alienated and detached from him? There are a lot of reasons. But I want to give you five, five reasons why I think that um, these are the things that predominantly distort how I view God and therefore kind of how I interact with him and what I, what I do, okay? So number one, Number one is perpetrator. There is a perpetrator. What I mean is we have a powerful spiritual enemy who is hell-bent, literally. Hell-bent on your destruction from the moment you were conceived. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 8. He says... um, Satan, this enemy, is, quote, the father of lies. He says when he, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. In chapter 10, we're told that this, this um, perpetrator is one who despises us and seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. So we have a real perpetrator in our lives and one of, the, one of the primary schemes that this evil one uses is to luring us into believing things about God that just aren't true. And as he's called the father of lies, he's really good at his job. And, and he works hard in everything he does to, to um, ruin, absolutely ruin, my life and the lives of people around me. Do you remember the first recorded uh, example of this from the evil one? Yeah, page three. Page three of the Bible. He, he moves quietly and shrewdly to Eve. And remember, he says, did, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And, and wickedly but brilliantly, um, he was prompting Adam and Eve to question God's two most fundamental attributes. His love and his goodness. Um, God doesn't really have your best intentions in mind. He's holding back on you. He knows if you really had that, you'd be happy. So he calls into question by, by a question. And again, he, you know, he, he hits her not with a stick, but he hits her with an idea. A lie. You can't really trust God and what he has for your life. And they respond, they reject God's authority, and they usurp his authority 
taking it on themselves. And their view of God just goes like further down, tumbling down, tumbling down, getting more distorted and more distorted. And ever since the fall of man, our view, has, our view of God, it's been fractured and the perpetrator was behind the original one. We call it original sin. What's, what's kind of passed down to us. In fact, the Bible reminds us, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament book to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 6, 12, he says, For our battle, the struggle, that's the sort of underlying struggle that we have in life, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against that co-worker, though sometimes you kind of think he might be the devil. Um, but it's against authorities against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil world. There are spiritual realities, he is saying, that are beyond our five senses that we experience in life, and that there's this intense battle going on. And even though the conclusion of the battle is already sealed, Jesus has won, the battle's still going on in real time where we are now. There's a second factor that distorts our view of God and can cause us to feel disconnected. There's, there's the perpetrator, but number two, parenting. Now, let me, let me, before I jump into this, let me say a couple notes because there's, there's a danger here before I say any, any words about it. Um, if there are parents in this room whose, whose kids have kind of rejected God and said, oh God, you're a, you know, intolerant, whatever you're, and they've rejected God, okay, I ask you over these next few minutes and as we talk about this issue, do not, do not allow undue guilt and shame and condemnation. Because do you know who brings that? Go back to number one. <laughs> the perpetrator. Even though we just talked about him, he would love to s slide in real quietly in the seat next to you and kind of go, look what you did. Okay. God was the perfect father. Look what his kids did. Okay. So again, as we talk about this, please, or let me say the other, if you're a child who has experienced damage in relationship from a parent, and you've gone through the process of forgiveness, do not allow the perpetrator to kind of bring this all back up. That is not the purpose of this. This is simply, simply, this is simply to be aware of the ways in which you may have a distorted view of God in your life so that I can take it and give it to the Holy Spirit. So I can lay it before him and say, would you, would you kind of work on this? Would you remold this? Would you help me in this area? Because I know it's messed up. I know it's colored and skewed and all that sort of thing. So that he can bring healing. That he could give you a right view of what your heavenly father is in your life. Okay? Does that make sense? As we go into this one. I believe that God actually designed parents in this world so that they would function in the lives of their children in a way to um, represent, to reflect God. So that through that process of growing up, and I see you know, who my parents are, that, that through that process, children would grow to learn what God is like and how to live a life submissive to his loving and caring rule in our lives. So I think it's supposed to function this way. Right? This, is, this is not abnormal or anything. So it would make sense then that because all, everyone here who's a parent, including myself, is deeply flawed. We are. We just are. <laughs> it would make sense then that because we are deeply flawed, because of original sin, 
that all of us in some way, those flaws are going to come out in our understanding of who God is, you know, because of my parents' flaws and my kids because of my flaws and all that sort of thing. So let me give you kind of some, some examples, and you might even think about which one of these might represent some of your experience. If, if you were raised by loving and kind parents, how do you suppose you're going to generally think about God? Well, God's going to be gracious. He's going to be caring. If, if you had parents who were um, overly focused on rules and you complying to those rules, how, how, how are you going to think about God? Now, God's going to be obsessed with regulations, right? Obsessed with your behavior, just constantly looking, measuring, assessing your behavior. If you had parents who were critical and shaming, God's going to be very judgmental. He's going to be condemning. If you had parents and you kind of had to earn their love, God's love is going to be capricious here one day, not the next. You don't know. You're not sure. Is it because of you? Is it something you did? Is he angry at you? If you had parents who, who spoiled you by indulging every whim and every desire you had, how were you going to generally be oriented toward God in life? God's someone who should give you whatever you want, whenever you want it. And if he doesn't, shame on him. He owes you, right? Um, if you had parents who, who were fairly distant, kind of aloof emotionally to you and that sort of thing, you're going to have a God who's kind of indifferent toward you. Yeah, God, I suppose God kind of likes me. He puts up with me. You talk about love. And go, well, you know, he's, 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 he's probably, he probably is caring. He probably kind of generally likes me. Now, if you had parents who were a mixture of all of these things, right, um, how were you going to view God? Well, he's a loving, legalistic, disapproving, compassionate, but harsh, indulgent, gentle, heavenly father, right? You see how this works, though. This colors when I think of God. When I blow it and I sin, my immediate response is, what did my parents do when I blew it and sinned? And I kind of think that's probably what he's thinking right now. Now, again, this does not mean there's a direct correlation. I've known plenty of people who grew up in loving, healthy households, and they have a really toxic view of God. And I know people who grew up in extremely, extremely dysfunctional, messed up families, and they have pretty healthy view of God. So there's not a correlation, but the idea is that in general, how our parents treated us has a significant bearing and flavoring on when I think of God, what comes to mind in my head. The third factor that can distort our view of, of God and cause us to feel disconnected at times is preaching. This one's similar to the parent one, isn't it? You can probably see that right away. If, if you grew up in church, how many of you when you were kids th through 18, kind of church life was sort of something you grew up with? I'm just curious to know. Okay, some. Maybe 60%, 70%, something like that. If you grew up in church, you probably assumed the leaders of the church read this thing called the Bible. And they kind of know the God who was involved in the creation of this Bible. And so you, you probably kind of assumed what they tell you and what they say and how they are is a reflection of their own lives immersed in the scriptures and their own lives connected 
to God. So what they tell you and what they say, and not just what they say, but how they say it, is what and how God thinks in life. You know, kind of the general attitude that God has. So if, if you were taught um, in a setting where, 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 where the preaching was kind of hellfire and brimstone, okay, um, how are you going to think about God? He's full of wrath, right? Just full of judges. Just cannot wait to get you on judgment day. <laughs> Can't wait to the end of the semester when the grades come out and you get judged. If you were taught that this God is all thou shalt and thou shalt not, okay? How, how are you going to think about God? Well, does God care more about rules or relationship? Well, he clearly cares more about rules because it's all about thou shalt now. Shalt not. That's kind of how you think about him. If you were taught that God was here to, to, to satisfy all your desires, to make you happy, and just, you know, kind of give you everything you want, how are you going to view God? Well, he's kind of this overly indulgent grandfather who kind of just likes to see the kids having fun, you know, sort of thing. That's your general view of God. And again, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation, just like with parenting things, but the way God was portrayed in the church you grew up in will have a big impact on how you think about him. The fourth reason that we have a distorted view of God is projection. Um, and this is, this is true in all relationships. It's very much true with God as well, though we don't tend to think about it. We tend to project our own flaws our own defects, our own weaknesses, character, and that sort of thing, inadequacies, we tend to project those on to God. Um, the, kind of the, the, the reasoning behind projection, the way it works just psychologically speaking, is I can't bear the thought that I'm a petty, vengeful, selfish person. I can't bear that thought. And so I kind of project it on to, well, you must be like that too, at least to share it so maybe I don't feel quite as bad. We do this on subconscious levels all the time, all the time in relationships. And so with God, we can oftentimes tend to project many, you know, oh, he's condemning, he's fickle, he's overly critical, um, he's uh, cold, he's indecisive, he's, he's unkind. No, not that God is any of those things, but rather than being honest about how truly different he is from us, from me, we kind of unconsciously bring him down to this human level. And so that's, that's kind of what God's like. Or the flip side. There's a flip side of projection. It's not that I project my weaknesses onto him. The flip side is that sometimes I project my wants and my dreams onto him. You ever thought about that? See, if I, if I have this grandiose vision, I want to be this famous speaker and author who go, goes all over the world and gets paid grossly over what I should uh, to do things, I bet God wants that for me too, right? I bet he's pretty pumped about that. He must be because I'm so excited about it. He's like me, so he probably wants that as well. We, we tend to oftentimes can project our wishes and desires on him that may or may not be his at all. There's a, there's a psalm, Psalm 50. It's um, Asaph is the author. And Asaph is writing to Israel, speaking from God, like a mouthpiece of God, and, and he's condemning Israel. He's saying, you go through the motions of, you know, you do sacrifices and burn incense and all this stuff, and yet your lives are so corrupt 
underneath. You're, he calls them wicked, and he says things like this. Uh, verse 17, you, you, this is God speaking through Asaph. He says, you, you hate instruction. You turn your back on my words. When you see a thief, you make friends with him, and you associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You sit maligning your brother, slandering your mother's sons. And listen to this. And you have done these things, and I have kept silent, and you thought I was just like you. Isn't that interesting? That's projection. God's not saying, I'm, I'm not getting my hand slapped right away. He must be okay with this. There's no, you know, I do something wrong, and there's not an immediate, oh, God must think this is all right. <laughs> this is a human condition that I tend to assume God's just like me. He wants the things I want. So any version of projecting whether it be the negative things onto God or my wishes and dreams, it contributes to me having a distorted view of who God is, and, and it keeps me in, in bondage of thinking, he's just like me. And number five, what often keeps us from, correct or, um, for, from correcting our false views of God, and, and this one kind of seals up definitely the previous one, and it's pride. Let me start by saying I'm as guilty of this as anyone. I gave you the example earlier. Like I said, this week as I was thinking through this one, that, I mean, there have been multiple things, but that one incident back in college just flooded into my mind of this time of how, how prideful I was that surely this is who God, this is what God is like. Um, now, I'm not saying that God is unknowable. You could kind of say, oh, well, you have pride about God. No one can know what's true, and we just kind of fall into this quagmire of relativism. No one can say what God's like. It's your God for you and my God. No, God is not ineffable, which means completely, you can't say a word about him. That's, that's true. In fact, um, in John's gospel, 118, John says this, no one has ever seen God. That means no one really knows who God is, God is in and of himself. That's that thing. Oh, so I guess no one knows what God is like, but there's one who has. <laughs> The one, the only son, Jesus. He knows him. He knows him in and of himself. He says, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him to us. Oh, so there is a source where I can't actually correct my views, and it's not just, well, this is what I think, this is what you think, there's no way to judge between the two, or that sort of thing. However, the Bible tells us that when it comes to our ability to truly understand, to truly see who God is, the phrases used in scripture, we see as through a mirror dimly. It's the idea of looking at an ancient, ancient mirror. You ever looked at like a bad mirror? <laughs> you're, kind of, you're like, it kind of works, right? But the problem is not with the object being reflected. It's with the thing that's trying to perceive it. Um, this, this is uh, the context of it. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, now, meaning this side of eternity, okay, Prior to the resurrection, for now we see dimly as in a mirror, but then in the future resurrection we'll see face to face. Now we know in part. We've got partial knowledge. It's not perfect. But, when, uh, but then I will know fully just as I am fully known. And see, here's another thing. If we really believe that our view of God is but a dim reflection, it's, it's not perfect, we will humbly, humbly come to the Holy Spirit 
asking him to work through God's word, to work through other people, relationships in our own lives, and even to work through our life experiences, things that have happened to us that are happening to us or that will happen to us, to help us to a more accurate view of who is God, really who is he. And the good news is this. This is like the super good news. God is ready to give you that knowledge. God is willing to correct those false views. He's able to help you and me overcome whatever false views we might have of him with the help of the Holy Spirit. We can, we can overcome any negative effect of the perpetrator, any negative effect of parenting. Through the Holy Spirit, overcome any negative effect of preaching or of my own projection onto God or of my own pride that may have kept me with this kind of distorted view. And so scripture emphasizes the point that personally knowing capital T truth, that's Jesus, that personally knowing truth, remember, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. It will bring freedom. It will bring liberty to your own life. And then you will be able to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. In fact, Paul writes this. He says, don't be conformed to the image of this age. This age has a certain view of who God is like. But be transformed by, and this is the key, so how do I get out of this? By the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to discern, oh yeah, that's what I'm looking to do. <laughs> what is good, what is pleasing, and the perfect will of God. So as, as we go through this series each week, and we're just kind of laying groundwork right now, we're going to get kind of more specific each week, looking kind of more narrowly at some things, but as we go through this series, you should know that you're going to uncover things in yourself, lies, but these lies are going to affect you in different ways. So you're going to uncover sort of like different sorts of lies. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, you're going to uncover like flat out wrong, like beliefs you have that are, if, if we were to have buckets up here, there's like the flat out wrong bucket, okay? Flat out wrong lies that are things like, well, you know, God's love really is um, kind of contingent upon me doing certain things. Um, that, that's flat out lie bucket. Okay? There's, a, there's a second bucket that you're going to find some of your beliefs in, and that's, that's sort of the mixed bag category. So you'll believe multiple ideas, and ideas come. You'll, you'll say things like, well, God is just, and therefore every single person should get punished immediately, and every single person will get punished. That's a mixed bag. Is God just? Yes, of course he is. Does he always punish right away? No, because there's another truth that he's patient. Does he always punish for every sin? Now, there's also the truth that he's forgiving and loving, and he moves into forgiveness and redemption. So do you see what I mean? You're going to hold some beliefs which are like, oh, that's a mixed bag. <laughs> and, that's going to be the, and then there's going to be kind of a fourth bucket of ideas you have that this would, this would be the idea that um, you might call them kind of believe truths. You sort of kind of believe them. Um, but you don't really believe them with much intensity. They haven't really sunk to the level of like a heart level for you. Uh, the book of James, James chapter 2, James is writing to people who, who have a bunch of kind of beliefs about God. And, and uh, I don't know if they've said something like, well, we believe in God. And he says, you believe in God? Good. The demons believe in God too, and they're scared of him. <laughs> Meaning that belief, 
it's not deeply rooted enough to actually make change in your own life. So throughout this series, you're probably going to find some kind of held beliefs. Beliefs. And what I would suggest you do is like the man who was asking for his son to be healed of Jesus in Mark chapter 9 where he said, he said, you know, do you believe that can heal your son? He goes, I believe. Could you help my unbelief? I, I kind of believe. But it's not great belief. And I love that. That's so real. <clears throat> I believe but help my unbelief. So throughout the series, when you come against those kind of belief categories. Okay, final part here. Final part here tonight. We've said God wants to be known. He, he wants to be experienced and known and, and seen by you and by me. And he's made himself known most fully in the person of Jesus. And then even after that, through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, moment by moment as you go throughout your day. So here's the personal question that we need to ask ourselves, okay? God wants to be known. He's made himself known. He's given his Holy Spirit to be known. A personal question we need to ask ourselves, am I willing to do my part in getting to know God? I don't mean to have a relationship. Relationship's all by grace. It has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's God moving toward. Am I willing to do my part in getting to know the God who has moved passionately toward me. Well, what is my part? How do I do that? How do I work on getting to know someone I'm already in a relationship with? It's by developing certain spiritual habits into my daily experience of life. Remember what we said at the beginning, the power of habits? Remember how that works? Our whole life works on habits. If you think that you can all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've kind of habituated certain things, and you know, I'm just going to, this, this is why, and we talked about uh, New Year's resolution, why most New Year's resolutions don't work, because what, what's our will, because my will is I'm going to go work out every day, I'm going to stop eating this, I'm going to go, what is my will fighting against? Habits, right? And as someone has said before, habits eat willpower for breakfast. <laughs> habits eat willpower for breakfast. That's why mere choosing to do something doesn't work. But, and that's how God made us. But if we move into this life of learning spiritual habits, oh, that's different. All of a sudden I learn spiritual habits and then those things become organic and natural and second nature and they're just the way you do things. <laughs> it's not working hard to do it. It's not all oh, my willpower. It's spiritual habits, spiritual practices. So in this series, we're going to move beyond shallow surface level of living and into a closer life of, of beauty and, and, and purpose and generosity, friendship with Jesus. But to do that, we're going to have to incorporate certain spiritual habits into our daily experience. Richard Foster wrote a book a number of years ago. It's got to be like 35 years old, 40 years old, something like that. But it's called Celebration of Discipline. Now, when he says the word discipline, he means spiritual habit. I kind of don't like the word discipline because I hear it. I mean, I, my skin recoils when I hear discipline. I'm like, ugh, I hate discipline. Spiritual habits. So let me, let me read this, this statement for you from Foster about how do you move into a life where spiritual habits take over instead of your willpower. I'm going to get it done. He says this. 
We must not be led to believe that these spiritual habits are only for spiritual giants and hence beyond our reach, or only for contemplatives who devote all their time to prayer and meditation. He says, far from it. God intends the spiritual habits of the spiritual life to be for ordinary human beings, people who have jobs, who care for children, who wash dishes and mow lawns. <laughs> I love that. God intends spiritual habits to be a part of all of our lives, not just the, the minister, the priest, the contemplative, the whatever, every single one of us. So each week, you're going to be really excited. You're going to be thrilled as you start to step into two particular spiritual habits. So this whole series, and, and we're going to try to give you kind of like, hey, here's something to try this week. It's just a little habit try thing. And those two spiritual habits, the first one is study. The first one is study. <clears throat> now, let me, let me give you, this isn't in your outline, but you might want to write down. Let me give you four things that always happen when you study. Study the Bible or study anything else, you know, whatever it might be. Um, the first thing that happens when you study is repetition. This is just repeatedly going over things again and again. My, uh, my oldest son, <clears throat> Keaton, he's been bugging me for, for months. He's, he's turning 15. So anyone guess, any parents are guess what he's bugging me about? Yeah, driving the car. So, so he's like, yeah, I got to get signed up on. And it's so different. When I, like when I got my license, you, if you're like 40 or over, like you just kind of go down. Like if you had a pulse and you'd like drive around the block, they're like, yeah, you got a license. That's it's totally different now. And I'm learning this. And, but what's funny is like we get into our neighbor and he's like, hey, dad, you know, can I drive the car? So I pull over and it's completely illegal. So but <clears throat> pull over. I go around the other side. He gets in and I'm watching him and he's like... <clears throat> So he, you know, he's doing this, and he's, checking, he's just checking, oh, I got this done, and okay, I got to get set, oh, blinker on. There's no habit involved at all, right? You know what I'm saying? Remember, like, when you first drove? It's so mechanical, right? Why is that? Because he, he hasn't done it by repetition. It's so mechanical for him, and so it feels really awkward. It looks really awkward, right? I'm frightened at times. His, his sister, Serena, who was in the back the other day, I got out, and she goes, oh, my gosh, we're going to die, <laughs> you know? Because it's not, it's, not, it's not a habit for him. So one thing that's involved in study is repetition. Doing something just again and again. Think about when you get in the car. You get in the car. I mean, I don't even think about it. It's just, you're just going off and that sort of thing, sometimes in a scary way so. But there's a health. You wouldn't want to constantly be looking in your mirrors and going like that. Life would be horrible. <laughs> repetition. Number two, concentration. Concentration is simply to, to give your full attention to something. Remember this last weekend, if you were here, Pastor Derry was talking about distractions. You know, you remember that? If you're, he's talking about how, how, how easily distractions come in and interfere with the spiritual habits that he's working on, you know, developing. He's sitting in his study and he's reading, and, and he hears the buzz of his phone, the bzzz. And he's like, I, he realized, like, I got to move that phone out of, out of the room. I can't even have it there. <clears throat> the, the third thing that's involved in study is a comprehension. Comprehension. This is simply to keep at it until you have a deeper understanding. And to keep at it until you have a deeper understanding. And keep at it until you have a deeper understanding. Um, some of the kids came home. I, I think it might have been Serena. She came home from school a couple weeks ago and... 
was saying, she goes, hey, so teacher says, um, I've got to teach you this. I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, I, I need to, we learned this thing, and so I need you to come sit, and I need you to teach you, how, I, I need to teach you how, how to do it. And see, the point was that if you comprehend it, if you really get it, you'll be able to teach someone. You'll be able to communicate it. I don't know about you guys, but anytime I've ever taught something, it gets rooted down in me far more than if I'm just sitting there learning it, right, from someone else. So there's comprehension takes place as we just get at it enough that it's like, yeah, I think I've got it internalized. Like, I think I really, I really get it. And the fourth thing that's involved in study is reflection. Reflection. This is just to continually reflect on the significance, not just, not just rote memorization, not just going, I'll learn the statement, I'll learn it like rote. That's not what I mean. To reflect on something is to think about implications, to think about connections with other things that seem disconnected. Um, to think about how, what, what might this be? It's, it's sort of like just you know, continually working to get something. You know, it's like a uh, you know, toothpaste bottle. You know, like when you're down to the end of it, you just like every day you're like, I think I get a little bit more out of this. And you just like keep working on it, like to get it out. That's this idea of reflection. You just stay at it, squeezing every ounce of meaning out of it. And the second thing that, that we're going to do, the second spiritual habit that's going to be really transformative for our lives this semester is meditation. Uh, the book of Psalms, longest book in the Bible, opens up with these words, very first words, book of Psalms, Psalms 1, 1 through 3. It says, how happy is the man, or blessed, you could say, is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join the group of mockers. Instead, he's got a different life plan, a different life of habituation. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. And so what's his life like? That, that path of habituation of spiritual habits, well, this is what his life is like. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water. Now, all trees that they know of are in the desert. This is the desert. <laughs> all trees are planted in the desert. This tree in the desert has got a creek going by it. Well, that's kind of convenient. That way, when it gets really hot, when it stops raining, there's still some water source down low. This tree is planted by streams of water. It bears fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, even when it's hot. Whatever it does <clears throat> prospers. See, if we will this semester devote ourselves to practicing these life-changing spiritual habits... God will set us free from, from the spiritual, the psychological, the relational damage that the lies so often cause in our own lives and in the circles around us. Because I promise you, I promise you, there is nothing more meaningful, there is, there is nothing more fulfilling or no other way, no more fulfilling way to spend your life than knowing God. There, there just really isn't. There's no more fulfilling way to spend your life than knowing the person who knit you together in your mother's womb. There's a, um, the old Westminster Shorter Catechism, which if, if you grew up in maybe a Lutheran church, a little more of a high church, you're familiar with the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
Catechism is a way of teaching doctrine to kids. And so you'd ask a question and they'd learn the answer. And you'd ask another question and learn the answer. And there's dozens and dozens and sometimes hundreds of these questions and answers. And this is how you learn. This is how you grow. The very first question that is asked, most foundational one, they thought. This is, this is before you start out. What is the chief end of man? Anyone know it here? Anyone grew up? Wes? You got it. You all heard that? Okay, let's go on to the next point. <laughs> Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love that. To enjoy him forever. Meaning, there is no more fulfilling life that you will have than to really know God. Man, to enjoy him. To get absolute joy out of your experience and knowledge of God. Jesus put it this way. Westminster Catechism didn't come up with this. You might be surprised. Jesus put it this way. This is eternal life, John 17, meaning this is the good life. This is what it's all about. This is eternal life that they may know. He's praying to the Father that they may know you, the only true God. What's really fascinating is when Jesus said that, and you think about it, that's that's a big statement. This is eternal. This is what life's all about. This is why we're here. This is what life is about. He says that they may know you. What's really fascinating is the context in which Jesus said the really good, true, and beautiful and fulfilling life happens by knowing God. Listen to the context. I'm going to read it for you. Matthew 17. Jesus is praying. Jesus spoke these things. It says, looked up to heaven and said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all who have, you have given him. And then he says, this is eternal life. This is the keystone. Not just the keystone habit or this. This is the keystone of life. This is eternal life that they may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent King Jesus.